welcome to New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, Constitutional Amendment Number 1 would increase funding for early childhood and K-12 via a one and one quarter percent distribution from New Mexico's $25 billion land-grant permanent fund. How would this impact early childhood programs? We'll ask the head of that department, Secretary Elizabeth Groginski. Elizabeth Groginski, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here with you today. I'd like to start with the proposed constitutional amendment, which is on this November's election ballot, then focus on possible impact on your programs, and finally ask if early childhood could truly be a game changer for New Mexico. But let's start with your background. Yes, um, I moved here to New Mexico in December of 2019. I was so pleased uh, when Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham made the nomination because I think she recognized that my 25 plus years working in early childhood and working at the system level was going to be very important to New Mexico's success with this new department. So having you know worked and built systems in the local level, at a county level, at a state level, and at a national and federal level, I felt that this was a great opportunity to come here and help the governor who had a clear vision for a New Mexico where we were investing cradle to career. And that was exciting to me because she was so clear about changing the trajectory for New Mexicans in terms of their educational outcomes, their health outcomes. And because of my experience building systems, it was truly an honor to come here. And it's been amazing. It's been a great experience. So one of the things about the the program starts right when you come, right? In July of Mm -hmm. 2020? Yep. July 1st, 2020. And you're the first secretary of the Early Childhood Department. Yes, the Early Childhood Education and Care Department. Right. And those programs, the, uh, many of them were in place. They weren't as large as they are now, but many were in place. But they were actually all over the place, uh, literally, in different departments, right? You're right, Stephen. They were in three different departments. That was a big task. Yeah. How did that, <laughs> how did that affect what you were doing and how the programs operated, the fact they were all over the place? Yes, I think the the good news for New Mexico was that we did have so many amazing programs for families prenatal to five, and the cabinet secretaries and the governor's office were incredibly supportive of the new department. So we were all in, all hands on deck to make sure that that transition was smooth, uh, that the staff were transitioned to the new department from the Department of Health, from the Children, Youth, and Families Department, and that the program, the pre-K program, was transferred over from the Public Education Department. So it was an enormous effort, but we did it. Um, Everybody was here on day one, July 1, 2020, and we were able to make sure that our providers also, you know, still received their funding. They knew um, how to make things happen for families and children on the ground, but it was a challenging time because we were all working virtually. People were in their homes. Yeah, we're right in the middle of a pandemic too, right? Yeah, exactly. So we knew that more needed to be done. And then we were receiving a lot of important federal relief funding to help keep childcare open as we were all working through the pandemic and the different challenges. So it was truly incredible. I mean, sometimes when I think back on it, it's like, how did we do that? Uh, but it is a testament to the, the people who work in this field. What was the condition of like child welfare, child maltreatment, readiness to learn at kindergarten, low birth weight babies, child mortality? Where, where did all that stand when you took over? 
You know, Stephen, I don't I don't have the specifics, but I do know that many of those indicators are what feed into the NEKC Kids Count report. And, you know, that had put New Mexico near the bottom. Uh, we we're at the bottom of uh, the states in terms of overall child well-being. And that, I think, was a big impetus for the legislature and for the governor to say we have to do something transformatively different. Funding more or doing things a little more or better isn't going to get us up to number 10, number nine, number eight uh, on the list of states where children are doing well and thriving. And that was uh, the impetus not only of the new department, but then the follow on the next year where the governor created the Early Childhood Trust Fund. Because again, programs and services must be delivered at a quality level for us to get the outcomes uh, that families and children need and to reach scale. Right now, we're not reaching all the families that are eligible for our programs and services. So that's that's a perfect lead in to the constitutional amendment, because that's also the impetus for the constitutional amendment, mm -hmm. why the legislature decided to place the constitutional amendment one on this November's ballot. And so I'd like to talk to you a bit about constitutional amendment one. And as I mentioned at the outset, there's going to be additional funding that comes to your early childhood department. And it's gonna come from something called the Land Grant Permanent Fund. And when I mention that fund to people, most people have never heard of it. And they're shocked that there could actually contain $25 billion. So can you enlighten us a bit about that fund? I mean, what is it and where, and where does this money come from? Exactly, so the Land Grant Permanent Fund um, was created um, when the you know when we became uh, first as a territory, but then as a state, and I believe that you know much of the revenues come from oil and gas, but it is there to ensure that the people of New Mexico have strong education. It funds our schools. It funds some of our higher education institutions. So I think what the legislature recognized, given what we know from research, given that we know children's learning begins at birth. Uh, that the land grant permanent fund needs to also be utilized to support early childhood education and care services. So that I think was the impetus to say, we cannot continue to underfund and get our children off to not a strong start and then expect you know, incredible outcomes for them as they enter kindergarten and go on through their educational career. So it's there to make sure that the people of New Mexico have a strong educational system. Just one more point on the fund, because I was really curious about the question I just asked you and called the state land office, which administers land grants, where the money comes from. And they told me that for the most recent year, there was about 2.4 billion that came in from oil and gas, whereas the current distributions from the fund are about 1.3 billion. So that's like another 1.1 billion for the fund. And they also told me that the investments of the 25 billion were growing uh, at about 8% per year over the last decade. And the reason I raise this latter point is I wanna ask you something specific about that. And that is, you know, most government programs, say like policing, we don't expect a return on investment from policing. But I wonder if early childhood really fits that paradigm. I wonder if it's reasonable for us to expect a return on early childhood that's something like the Wall Street returns of 8%. What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely, Stephen. Um, we know that investments in early childhood, especially high quality early childhood education programs, 
give tremendous results down the road. Um, some studies have estimated that for every dollar, uh, it's anywhere between seven and $13 return, every dollar invested. And those rewards that we reap as a society are so incredible. They're reduced special education, they're reduced um, crime and juvenile justice, they're improved health outcomes, better tax earnings as adults. These are actually returns to the state, right? Correct, correct. In other words, you're not, I mean, not only are you benefiting the kids, the parents, society, exactly. but you're talking about actual returns to the state in terms of dollars, right? Yeah, economic prosperity, reduced crime, health outcomes. All these things are have been shown through, demonstrated through long-term research that when we invest early and we invest in quality, that we can change the trajectory uh, for whole populations of families and children. And that's what this department is about doing. That's what we are here. We know that we have a big job and an important job to do for the state of New Mexico, but we need funding and we need sustainable and predictable funding. You know, oftentimes we, oh, here's some funding and now it's gone. Here's some funding. Uh, we need families and providers in the, across the state to know this funding is here and we are going to sustain it until every family uh, with young children in the state have access to the programs and services that they want and that they need. So is it, have, have there been any estimates about how much money would the early childhood department get if this constitutional amendment were to pass? Like what would the first year distribution be? What we have heard is current projections are putting the revenues from the land-grant permanent fund at about $150 million annually, and then another $100 million would go to our K-12 partners in terms of supporting our at-risk students in public schools. But we know that this kind of sustainable funding will be a very important shot in the arm for the work that the department is doing and has been doing since July 1, 2020. So that's exactly what I'd like to talk to you about next. But let me mention first that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm thrilled to be talking today with Secretary Elizabeth Groginski. Elizabeth is the first and only secretary so far of our early childhood department. She has a long experience in early childhood. And I'd like to talk about uh, some specific programs with you and what the impact of additional funding may be. And I'd like to start with a program, an early childhood program that most people have never heard of, and that's home visiting. And let me just start with the most basic thing, like what is home visiting? Home visiting is a voluntary free program that's available to families with children beginning prenatally up to the age of five and it promotes maternal, infant, and early childhood health. Talks a lot about safety and health, um, including safe sleep. We talk a lot with families about that. We talk about development, and it's focused on strengthening that parent-child relationship and making sure that families who have other needs, maybe they have housing needs, job needs, childcare needs, that that home visitor helps connect them uh, to whatever those supports and resources are that they need. We're measuring children's well-being. We're talking to moms about their um, depression. Uh, we're getting them referred to programs that can support them. And again, it's free and it's voluntary. Some home visitors come weekly, some come twice a month, but it really is based on what the family wants. So a home visitor may come to a family's home once a week. They may meet at a park. Uh, again, it's customized and personalized to each unique family's needs. So when I ask people about home visiting and talk to them, they, they sometimes they say, well, why do we need it? What's the reason for it? 
Yes. Yeah. I would say that there's a lot of things that come up as a family is um, having a baby and is pregnant. They may not have extended family in the area or their extended family may not be a strong support for them. So home visiting helps make sure that that beginning of life is the most positive and supported that it can be. Um, we talk, I staff here who are having babies and it's a stressful period. There's a lack of sleep. People are wondering, is this normal? Is this typical? If I can talk to somebody and make sure that my stress level's down, that I'm able to be there for my baby in the way that I want to be there, um, that's why home visiting is so important because not everybody has an extensive social support network. And there's a lot of important questions to be asked about a child's development. And again, just that connection to resources. So the people that I've talked to, the families, they it's incredibly valuable, that experience with their home visitor. Pick up the phone, text them, hey, something's happening, I'm not sure what's going on. And just having that calm, confident, assured voice on the other end of the phone or there in person with you to say, you're doing a great job, this is typical, or maybe it's not, let's get a referral to our early intervention program and see if maybe there's some things we can do to enhance your child's development. So it's just, it's very supportive. It meets families where they are and it provides them the unique support that they need. So one thing I've read recently is that over 40% of our families are single parent families. Yes. And that really argues in support of what you just explained is the, how a program could really make a difference. Exactly. Thank you, Stephen. And that's exactly right. I mean, if you don't have a sister or mother, grandmother, somebody to call or anyone to help support you, that creates what we call toxic stress and the stress levels go high. And then that parent is having a hard time being present and where they want to be for their baby um, at that time. So this home visitor helps reduce that stress, helps bring in supports and assures and builds the confidence of that parent. So I, I know the LFC has studied uh, New Mexico home visiting, but I know there have been a lot of other studies mm -hmm. uh, on home visiting, randomized control group studies. Do they tend to show positive results from these programs? They do. They do. They show both in terms of children's school readiness, but also in reduction of child abuse and neglect, improved maternal and infant um, health outcomes. And again, strengthening that parent-child relationship and connecting people to resources. But absolutely, very much improved, um, especially when we reach families prenatally. We see um, you know, less low birth weights, um, less preterm births. So those are some of the areas that are important for home visiting to help address in our state. Reducing low birth weights, reducing preterm births, and supporting children's overall health and development. So can you give us some idea of where the program stands today in terms of families home visited and where, what the program would look like scaled up so that it would be fully extended to the extent you think it's useful to do so? How many families would be home visited? And then what would be the cost difference? That is, how much more would it, money would it take to do what you think should be done to scale it up? Just some uh, basic background on that. Yeah, I'll give you some yeah some basic numbers that we did. Um, uh, the legislature mandated that the department do a four-year finance plan. So we published that last year. And where we are right now, we, we had hoped to be at around 9,800 families here in fiscal year 23. We're only at about 5,000 right now. Um, but we are continuing to work on a model where we're pulling down Medicaid funding, as well as state general fund, as well as some other federal 
funds that we have available. But an interesting model that we are starting right now is a connection with birthing hospitals across the state. So our goal is that every family with a baby born in a hospital in New Mexico gets a visit from somebody right there in the hospital. It's called Family Connects. It's very brief. It's two or three visits. Uh, then we have other home visiting models that are targeted to families. Um, so right now we're serving a little over 5,000. By 26, we'd like to be serving over 26,000 families in home visiting models. Some of those families are going to be dealing with substance use or mental health issues. We have a model that we're bringing to the state that is going to help those families very intensively, but make those connections and address some of their substance use and mental health issues while also making a strong connection with their baby. To just tell you, we've got a long way to go to scale. That doesn't even get us to serving every eligible family, but you can see 5,000 we're at right now. We want to be closer to 26,000. That's going to take about 100 million, at least 100 million more dollars to get us to that scale. So that would be 100 million of the 150 million just used on home visiting. Just for home visiting, yes. So just so listeners understand the numbers, there's about 20,000 some births a year. Yes, exactly. Uh, and home visiting is typically a three-year program, right? Exactly. It can be prenatal and it can yeah. go up to five, but it's typically, you're right, it's three. Yeah, so it's actually more than three years. Yes, exactly. So you're talking about maybe 60,000 potential families that would be interested some of them aren't going to be interested. So you're saying it scaling it up fully would be about 26,000 visits a year. That's not fully scaling, but when in our four-year finance plan, we projected out to FY26, and that is where our target is. That's where we would like to be. In four years. Yes, that would cost us about 108, a little over 108 million. Now, I do want to point out that many of the models that we have in the state, we can receive Medicaid uh, reimbursement for. And we are working actively with our home visiting providers to have them become Medicaid providers because we want to leverage all available funding, our federal funding, the land grant permanent fund, if it in fact passes, and the early childhood trust fund, as well as general funds. Well, I'd like to move on and, and talk with you next about uh, pre-K. But before I do that, let me mention that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz. We're talking about Constitutional Amendment 1 which would distribute about three quarters of 1% of the land grant permanent fund, which has about $25 billion in it. Three quarters of that percent would go to early childhood programs. And they, those programs include programs such as home visiting, pre-K and childcare. And one of the programs is pre-K. And I'm talking with Elizabeth Groginski, and she is the secretary of the Early Childhood and Care Department. And Pre-K is for three and four-year-olds, and it tends to have, as I understand it, many of the same benefits that home visiting has. It just sort of continues, though. Is that correct? That's exactly right. It's uh, high-quality standards. The New Mexico Pre-K standards um, reach nine of the 10 nationally recognized standards for high-quality preschool, and it has been a phenomenal program. As you maybe have mentioned, the LFC did a report last year, the year before, showing I think over a $6 return on investment for every dollar um, that we put into pre-K. You know, that was striking. And I, there was something else in that report that really jumped out at me. And that was the school readiness statistic. Mm -hmm. Like the non-pre-K students, so only 17% of them were ready to start kindergarten. Exactly. That just talks about the importance of those early opportunities. Yeah. 
Whereas the pre-K students, 65% of them were ready to start kindergarten. Exactly. And those gains persisted through third yeah. grade, through fifth grade, and even they had some data on high school graduation. Uh, and especially for low-income children. And um, It was even more dramatic for low-income children. Yep, exactly. But here's my question. What difference does that really make? Does that actually make a difference in outcomes? Yes. You mean having access to quality preschool? Yeah, and this difference in kindergarten readiness. Yes, because when you think about what is expected of a child once they enter the kindergarten room door, I mean, they they need to sit, they need to follow two and three step directions, they need to maybe even be able to write their name and do things. If that child has never had a preschool experience and been able to engage with their peers and have opportunities to read books and some children, they have don't have books in their homes. So that opportunity for three and four-year-old pre-K is absolutely critical to our long-term um, educational outcome success here in the state. That's why the governor, I mean, right away, she said, first of all, we need longer day. And we have moved in this administration from when we came in, it was 48% of our preschool slots were half day. Now that's only 19% of the overall overall number of children in pre-K. They are in six hours of pre-K, uh, 10 months of the year. And we've moved, um, we're over 14,000 children that are in pre-K. But we remember, uh, pre-K is important to remember because we have Head Start, which is a federal to locally funded program. And they serve over 6,000 preschool age children in our state. So we always are very conscious of making sure that as we grow New Mexico pre-K, uh, that we're partnering and collaborating with our Head Start programs, our tribal early childhood programs, and the Bureau of Indian Education pre-K program. So it's a it's a mix. Again, what we call it a mixed delivery system for pre-K. The same scale-up question I'd like to ask you, what, what does pre-K look like now and what would it look like scaled up? We're looking at, um, we want to be, because again, we want to be conscious of Head Start and other programs that we would want to be serving at least by 26, we projected at 16,418 preschoolers in New Mexico pre-K program, knowing that that complements the other mixed delivery systems of the federal Head Start program. And that would cost us about another 25 million is what we're estimating. Now, I want to take into account these funding sources, um, this funding is projected on incremental increases in the overall per child cost. Uh, so I think what we've seen over the last year with inflation and even what we've seen with teacher salary increases, we know that probably that's going to cost more because we need to pay more per child so that we can cover the actual costs of delivering pre-K. So the last program I want to quickly get to is childcare. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, the administration under Luhan Grisham, I think they raised the child care assistance level from 100%, I think then to 150, then to 200%. And now it's at 400% of poverty, which means a family of four earning $111,000 would be entitled to ch that child care assistance. But what I understand is that's paid for with federal relief money. So I'm assuming that goes away without some kind of uh, additional funding source. That's exactly correct, Stephen. Um, the federal relief funding has been instrumental in stabilizing our childcare industry and helping grow more childcare across the state, which is desperately needed. And again, that helps support our local economies when businesses have places where their employees uh, can access childcare. 
So that budget uh, definitely has grown. We've released 157 million in stabilization funds to our childcare industry last year. And that was over a thousand programs received grants, some very significant, um, some smaller, again, depending on their size and their operating costs. Um, but that's been helpful. We also, the support for families by expanding eligibility has been tremendous. We, I think we've seen over 2,000 children now that are enrolled whose families are eligible and receiving that financial assistance. When again, childcare for at a five-star center in New Mexico, what it really costs to provide care for an infant monthly is $1,500. So if you have a, an infant and you have a preschooler, that preschooler, it costs about 900. So if childcare providers were actually charging parents what it costs them to deliver the care, you know, there'd be very few families in New Mexico that could afford that on a month to month basis. So that's why expanding eligibility, recognizing the childcare, the cost of childcare is out of reach for most families. This financial support is critical both to our industry of childcare, make sure that they're solvent and that they can stay open and expand services and to families who are faced with incredible economic hardships. So we're talking about, you know, at least a $200 million increase uh, that will need to maintain these eligibility levels and to also align our co-payment structure for families to be more reasonable. So that's 200 million at 400%. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you have any estimate of, of what it would be at 200% of poverty? In other words, families would qualify yeah. if they earned at or below 200% of poverty. What would that be? A couple things. When we expand access, when we expand eligibility, we also have to look again at the rate uh, that we're paying childcare providers right. to provide that service to families. And so I think the biggest cost increase that we're looking at is in the hourly rate for people who work in childcare. When we set our rates in 21, it was based on a floor salary of 1210 with a teacher making closer to 17 or 18. But we've seen what's happened in every industry. People can you know, go in and pour coffee or do retail for $17 an hour. And so our childcare industry is really struggling and we need to address that first and foremost, as well as continue expanding eligibility. So there's a couple of things operating. It's not just expanded eligibility, but it's also making sure that our rates are competitive and that we're fully funding the cost of high quality childcare. So I guess the, the bottom line from all this discussion about the constitutional amendment is you could use all that money and a lot more to fully scale up the three programs we talked about. And plus you have other programs. Exactly, and I was just gonna say, Stephen, in the four-year finance plan, we kind of do a summary at the end, our family infant toddler program, which is for infants and toddlers with developmental disabilities and delays, our childcare program, our home visiting and our pre-K. Uh, by 2026, we're looking at a 500 plus million dollar revenue gap for the department. If we want to continue to scale, and to ensure that these programs are of the highest quality. This need is great. And many of these expenditures are not taking into account, you know, supply building, some of the infrastructure costs. But overall, yes, we see a great need. 23, we're still okay because we have federal relief money. But as we go into these out years, 24, 25, 26, the revenue gaps increase significantly. So the bottom line question then is that I raised at the beginning of the show, if we were to fully scale up these programs, as you would like to do with the additional $500 million, what could that mean for the trajectory of the state? 
not just for the child, not just for the parents, not for social welfare, but for the state itself? Could it make a difference that we get off some of these bottom lists? It will absolutely make the difference because many of the things that put us on the bottom list are things that our programs are designed to address, which is access to early childhood opportunities, reducing, like you said, low birth weight, preterm births, creating more economic opportunity for families. If we have a robust childcare industry in our state, businesses will be attracted to come here. There'll be jobs for families. So all across the board, the programs and services that this department leads and administers are absolutely a game changer for the state when we fully fund them to deliver quality at scale. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Early Childhood Cabinet Secretary, Elizabeth Groginski. Thanks also to my producers, Elias Enley, Roman Garcia, and Tristan Klum. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki, and my name is Steven Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of the show are available wherever you get podcasts. Archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.